honestly, you know, when I go on Facebook and I see some people who wound around the axle about politics or some of these other things that really do involve the maintenance of this world, I want to say, and again, I'm not naming names, but I'm wanting to say, you know, did you not get a change of perspective that lasted? I mean, empires come and empires go. They always have. They always will. This world is not going to be perfect. It never will be. So, why are you getting so bent out of shape about this? You know, you're going to change channels soon. You'll have another body. It'll be another go and it'll be something else. Yeah. Welcome everybody to the Jeff Mara podcast. Tonight's guest is Jim Bruton. He is an Emmy award winning wildlife film director, aviator, adventurer, inventor of the satellite video phone and NBC News Middle East war correspondent. Jim had an incredible near-death experience after a horrific plane crash that left him for dead, which led him to write the book, The In-Between, A Trip of a Lifetime. Hopefully, we will get him to describe what happened on the other side and how it has changed his life. Jim, thank you so much for being with me this evening. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you Glad so much. Glad to be here. Thank you. You are obviously a very accomplished man. I could probably talk to you for hours about all kinds of stuff you've done, your adventures, the video phone, the war correspondence. But since our time is limited, let's get right into it. If you feel comfortable about it, because maybe you don't want to relive it, but could we start like around the time of the plane crash or right before it and kind of go from there? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's it's absolutely fine. I'm, I'm happy to talk about any aspect you want and start anywhere you like. Okay, great. So what happened was um, I used to travel a lot. I mean, I was, you know, a war correspondent for NBC News. And then I met a widow with three babies here in Connecticut. And I call that the day I stopped being in the war and joined the circus. Mm-hmm. So I married her and was trying to settle down. And I think so that I wouldn't drive her nuts. She said, you know, why don't you build one of those old airplanes you're always talking about? And I said, that sounds like a great idea. So I did. I built one and flew it, and then I built a second one. And the second one was a smaller, much more whimsical design called a flying flea. It looked like something out of a uh, cartoon. And Uh, um, Let me ask you this. Would you say that those are ultralights? You know – Technically, it could be, but it was in the light sport category, which is just above the weight threshold for ultralights. Okay. Um, but I, uh, I was on my second test flight with it when I lost my engine. I couldn't make it back to the airfield, and the only place really left for me to try to make it to with all the hills and the forests was a small lake at a nearby Boy Scout camp. Uh-huh. So I aimed for that, and I uh, overshot the bank. And I hit all these trees at about 70 miles an hour in the equivalent of a soapbox derby car with wings with a motorcycle engine right in front of my face. I don't know how I didn't wind up eating it, but I did break all my ribs, ruptured both lungs. My right leg looked like a pretzel, had a hole in my lower back. Uh, it was pretty beat up there. And yeah. when when I stopped crashing, there was no plane left around me. It literally exploded into matchsticks. Mm. But there was a man fishing nearby, and uh, thank heavens he had a cell phone on him that day. And he called 911 while he kept me propped up because he said I wasn't really able to breathe. I was more gasping for air since Mm -hmm. my lungs were ruptured. And uh, the helicopter landed and, you know, pulled me out of the wreckage and flew me up to uh, Hartford's trauma center. And my wife and some friends got there maybe an hour and a half later, and maybe it's two hours later. 
but I was in a breathing machine. Mm-hmm. I had the breathing tube down my throat and yeah. all kinds of other tubing coming in and going out of me. Right. And I escaped the restraints. <laughs> so yeah. they, they told my wife, you know what? We have about a week's worth of six plus hour operations per day coming up. We could lose him any time. Some of these operations only have a 2% chance of success. So we think we should just put him into a coma. And she agreed. And so bottom line is, you know, the best I can figure it is when they put me into a coma here, that began my near-death experience. After your crash, were you conscious at all? Were you completely unconscious until uh, until you were out of the coma? That's a good question. Um, I have no memory. I mean, I, I saw my propeller stop. I saw getting it started again and it stopped again. But other than that, I really have no memory from my crash to two days prior. I went back through my emails later on to find the last one I remembered. And it truly was two days before my crash. I think I hit the trees that hard. I just left my memory right there on the field. Mm. Um, And then, of course, in the hospital, you know, with anesthesia and painkillers and physical shock, um, you know, I didn't have any memory of arriving at the hospital or anything. And I would even say that when I came out of the coma, Basically, a week later, I don't have mem- a memory for about another week. Uh, I, I came to consciously, if you will, though I'm, I was awake. I think I was just kind of, excuse me, kind of stupid. Um, right. I think I was really out of it for about another week and, and came to in the rehabilitation hospital. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember being transported there. But mm-hmm. it's um, but it's funny. Between those two times, you know, the beginning of, you know, just before the coma and just after the coma, Seeing those as bookends of amnesia and shock and totally not lucid, within that is my near-death experience. Incredible lucidity, full memory, logic, and everything. See, that's kind of unusual right there, you know? Yeah. Were you wearing a helmet? No. uh You weren't wearing a helmet, so that's interesting. Um, Were you ever diagnosed with like some type of or any type of brain injury? I mean, at least you'd had to have a concussion. Well, it's interesting, man. I I had this big cut on my chin Mm -hmm. and I also had a thin crack across all of my teeth uh, that was consistent with an impact. Hmm. But um, I I was looking in my medical records and I didn't see anything about a head injury or concussion. Hmm. I don't know. Have I'm just curious, have you tried uh, any type of hypnosis or anything to see if you can get back any of those memories? I, I do have someone I want to go see. He's actually with the Michael Newton Institute, which not only does pet, like past life regression, they do life between life regression, and they could certainly you know take me back in this life as well. So I was thinking about just going up there and getting the whole list of it done because, yeah. you know, I'm I would I would actually be interested in I I know it sounds weird mm-hmm. but I'd be okay to totally see all of my crash right up to when I wasn't crashing anymore I don't yeah. have a problem with that yeah and, and then also you know I would like to really go back and um it's not that I've forgotten and it's not that I'm really that far away from my near death experience even now mm-hmm. but I would really love to just super go back into that time. For yeah. any additional detail I might see, and and just the emotional component as well. Right, not much memory after seeing the you know the engine start and stop. 
after you came out of the coma, you know, you were kind of out of it, probably loopy for about a week, as you were saying, and then you started coming back. When did you start remembering the, the near-death experience? Yeah, I would say it was that week after I came out of the coma when I was in the rehab hospital. You know, it was, all I can say is, I mean, it was probably like coming out of a fog, so it's really hard to say exactly when and maybe some of the other details. But I just remember sitting there, sitting there in the rehab hospital and it was like this endless video loop going on in my head of this experience hmm. and where I was. And like I said, it was very much an emo a strong emotional component to it. And I'm just sitting there replaying it over in my head with each iteration. There's more detail and more impact. And it was really kind of like, wow, what is this all about? Hmm. And you know, I, it was just so foreign um, a scene to see. And, I mean, you just don't have an experience like that. And you I certainly know. don't have a – I mean, you might say you have a dream like that, but not like this. This right. was no dream. I knew it was no dream. I'll be honest, Jeff. I thought, is it possible I'm actually dead? Right. And this hospital is a mental construct that I've created in order to come to grips with the fact I'm dead. And somewhere in here, the other shoe is going to drop. Um, you know, I really yeah. was wondering this. Yeah. So um, anyway, I guess the real answer was that almost, you know, in terms of a near death experience, uh -huh. but indeed, I guess I really was back and just trying to piece everything together as to what actually happened over on the other side. As I was reading your book, obviously you were not the typical near-death experience of going through a tunnel, seeing the light, you know, and that usual thing. So can you take us back and, and give us the story of how everything transpired? I will. So like you say, um, some of the common hallmarks of near-death experiences are, you know, going through a tunnel. Uh, and once you're through, you might see deceased loved ones, like maybe your grandparents or something, or even a family pet. I've heard of that. Uh, you'll also, you also may see angelic beings or, you know, some people might see Jesus or maybe Muhammad or something. I'm not sure. But, you know, they, they will see holy figures. And then there's a life review. You know, a lot of I think of Scrooge, you know, Christmas Carol, when mm -hmm. I think of that, you know, they, they really see how they've lived their lives and maybe where they could have done better. Uh, and then sometimes they get a big message and then they're sent back. I didn't have any of that. Um, mine it was more like I was teleported, if you will. It's like I just immediately appeared uh, on a terrace of a tall building in a post-apocalyptic landscape. Imagine New York years after it had been hit by a meteor or a nuclear blast or something like that, just absolutely in ruins, absolutely dead. Yeah. And above it were these huge storm clouds. It was just like the mother of all storms getting ready to, you know, unload the, the rain and maybe lightning and all that. And while I was looking at this, I wasn't afraid. I was just accepting of what I was seeing. And all of a sudden I was racked by a, a wave of nausea. I remember just bending over with pain. And I said, I don't think I can stand this. And when I said that, I heard these light, like gear clacking sounds off to my left. And I looked over and saw something that was like a four-story tall sculpture of an egg made out of latticework standing up on its end. And it was within that egg, through that latticework, I could see these little movements. And I, you know, made my way over to it and looked through this latticework. And I could see all these little freely freely suspended in air gears. And they were 
sector gears. The sector gear is a partial arc of a full gear, and it's designed to sweep back and forth with a certain uh, limited motion. You see them in clocks going back and forth, and it helps move the, all the gears that keeps time. And I've never really dealt with sector gears. I've never really seen a sector gear, but I knew that's what these were. And I um, put my hand through it to see if I could touch any of them because while they were freely suspended, they just seemed to be able to pass through each other, something physically impossible. I also noticed that some were very clear and some were not so clear, like out of focus. But when I looked at them, it's like a video feed of what they represented played in my head. And I realized these were events in my future. How did I know that? If I saw myself, I looked older. If I saw my kids, they had kids now, things like this. So while I was reaching inside, one of the gears brushed by my hand. And when it did, I was racked with nausea again. And I reflexively grabbed it, pulled it out through the latticework and threw it away. And then all the gears started spinning around as if they were recalibrating for the loss of one. And that's when I started, you know, talking. I mean, I said, wow, what, what's going on now? And this disembodied voice that stayed with me the rest of the experience said, this is the process of becoming. This is the future birthing into the now. Now let me stop. And, Can I ask you a second? You said disembodied voice. So you didn't see yeah. a being. You didn't see a being of light. Nope. You just heard a voice communicating with you. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And, you know, from there, I, I just said, um, you know, as, as, as the machine was spinning around and recalibrating, you know, I said, what's happening now? And it said, each gear is the probability of a thought, word, or action in your future, and your destiny is resetting itself around what you've removed. And I said, how did I know I could do that? And it said, why are you here? And I said, I have no idea. I don't even know what this place is. And it said, you are in the in-between. I said, in-between what? And it said, everything. And that the impossible now between the past and the future. And I said something cocky, like, you know, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And it said, it's impossible in its short duration. Yet here you are standing inside the eternity of a single moment. Do you remember who you are in the world to which your body belongs? And I just remember standing there with a blank look on my face. I had no memory. Mm -hmm. If somebody had come up to me and said, if you stay here any longer, you can't go back. I'd say, go back where? To your family. Mm -hmm. What family? Mm -hmm. I didn't even, I don't even think I would have known my name if you mm -hmm. said, what name did you go by? Mm -hmm. I was depersonalized. It just felt like down to zero. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Like all that stripped away. Yeah. And anyway, I, um, you know, when I said I, I have no idea, you know, who I am or anything. It just said, then you see the truth and how the past is dust. And I said, so why do some of these gears, these futures that I touch make me sick and not others? And it said, all choices have unintended consequences. The pain each brings is your guide. So with that, I, you know, realized, okay, this must be my mission. I have an opportunity to, let's face it, kind of stack the deck, you know, removing choices in my future that might be to my spiritual detriment. So I thought, well, right, that, that's good. And at one point I said, you know, like, where, where are the gears that feel good? He said, you're not here to feel good. That wasn't meant to sound menacing. It's like, you've got an opportunity, limited time, you're on a mission, let's kick some butt. Mm -hmm. So with that, I just, um, you know, kept 
reaching through there and removing a gear, the whole thing would recalibrate. And I just kept pushing on to do that over and over. And at one point I, I saw this growing pile of gears and I said, you know, it looks like if I don't have a bad future, I have no future at all. And it said, um, your destiny has to fit itself around futures that aren't meant to be. Your number of breaths are already counted. I will worry about your last one. I said, I don't know how comforting that is. And it said, eliminating bad choices doesn't mean you won't make wrong ones. You won't know they're wrong until after they pass. Since right and wrong are variables over which you have no control, knowing what comes tomorrow is a waste. Better is understanding the beauty of how things fit and refit together. And at some point I said, you know, so, so what am I missing here in my lack of understanding? I said, clearly, what is before you? Grace. I said, no one deserves salvation. It, ha- it can only be given by grace. But it must be chosen at the expense of the world that separates us. And I said, you know, this fixing my future is painful and it's also humbling because I'm not using some moral compass or mantra or, mm-hmm. you know, I have some religious figure or some even hero uh, to, to sort of hang on to. I said, it's just you know about pain. And it said that um, really something profound. It said, if those with choices make poor use of them, then offering fewer possibilities could be called mercy. I thought about that, and I said, yeah, I get that. And I watched this one gear then pass by, disintegrating into dust as it went from the present into the past. And it said you can't change the past, but you can make better choices in the future. Everything is interconnected and paid more attention to your relationships. Be gentle with everyone as I am gentle with you. And I said, you know, with the pain and everything, I said, you know, gentle, what's gentle about all this? And it said, you prayed for something for which being here is the answer. And now the man who fell from the sky is not the same who flew into it. And with that, I remember took one last look out on this dead city. I put my hand on the egg and I said, I think I can live with this now. That's, it basically booted me out. <laughs> if you don't mind, I'd like to backtrack a couple of things. So as you would pull a gear, each gear out, when I was understanding you would either, you would feel pain or not feel pain. And you decided yeah, that it, each, if a gear relieved yeah. pain, then you would say, okay, I'm going to get rid of this gear. And, and right. if it didn't relieve pain or it made you feel better than you left it, is that how you decided how you were pulling the gears out? Yeah, it was more like, you know, just by putting my hand through there, it's not like I had to grab them. I just had to put my hand where they were moving through. And if one brushed by my hand or went through my hand, maybe, um, and it caused pain, I grabbed it then. Mm-hmm. And then I was able to remove it. As you would do that, was there a memory associated with the gear, anything in your life? Or was it purely just pain? It was just pain. Just That's pain. all. And I thought about it later on and I thought, you know, there's a certain beauty in this wisdom because, I mean, imagine if one of those gears had me winning the lottery or the Powerball, becoming a millionaire, but becoming the biggest jerk that ever lived, at least according to my own personal evolution. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have been doing me any favors to have had that great fortune, if we want to call it. And so, you know, it's not like I was able to always see these choices, probably because I was having to reach up high inside the egg. Maybe reaching up high meant moving into the future. Mm-hmm. Maybe the present would have been here and that which was turning into the past was down below. I'm just guessing that. I don't know. But in reaching up high and, and until I could find those that hurt me, 
I couldn't see them to see their representations. I just knew they hurt me. And that's really all I needed to know in the end. Interesting. Do you feel like as you think back now before your life, before this, that your life was incomplete? Maybe you were, you made a lot of bad choices in life and, and you needed to change. I'm, I'm sorry if this is personal. I'm just trying to kind of think no, about no, this because this experience is so different from everybody else's. I know. And I almost want to, and if you don't mind me, Saying this, do you is it possible you felt you were in hell or something like it, and you needed to change? Right. No, I don't. I don't. I didn't have a feeling like I was in hell, like a feeling of being abandoned or being stuck there for all of eternity or that kind of pain. I really didn't. I. I had. It's like I had this intuitive, con you know, concept in my head that it was designed for one purpose and one purpose only, and only for as long as I was there. It's kind of like when you go to boot camp. Again, you don't see the unconditional love in boot camp. Right. You'll get your butt beat. You will be torn down to re- be, be built back up. But the whole idea is to give you what you need to survive what's coming next. Right. So, yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't know what you want to call the being if, you know, God or an angel. I would. Angel. No, I, 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 I personally, I believe it was God. Okay. If anybody so- has a problem with that, sorry. Oh, that's <laughs> but, okay. I, I don't. But that's. That's my that's my take on it. Right. Um, and, and you asked an earlier question. I don't think it's that I was, you know, making a ton of bad choices before. I've always been spiritually inclined. Uh-huh. But it could be that whatever's coming up from now on, from the crash time on, uh-huh. will have greater potential moment. Right. Should I make bad decisions? Uh-huh. And so this was the time to sort of have that slap across the butt, if you will, yeah. to say, okay, pay attention. Some big stuff's coming. Mm-hmm. I need you to get this right. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm on board. Right. And yeah, I was going to say, and I found it interesting that you seem to single out God telling you be gentle as I've been gentle with you. I so, think I know why Yeah, you think you know. it's, Partly, when when people come back after a near-death experience, there's a whole list of like after effects and steps in the integration of the experience to your life. And some of it certainly is when you share your story with people. And fortunately, I haven't had this negative experience, but a lot do. You know, they'll share it with people and they'll say, oh, it was, you know, you were hallucinating as a result of the anesthesia or blah, blah, blah. And everybody's pretty much just telling you nothing special happened. And you're sitting there thinking, yeah, well, you know, why do I react differently to everything in life now? You know, I've I've changed to my core. I've really rebooted and this is Jim Mm 2.0, you know, Jim 1.0 died in a crash. Mm -hmm. And, and just, and and honestly, 65 to 78% of people who have near death experiences get divorced because yeah, because you know, you may look the same, but you're not the same. And your spouse is now dealing with this ambiguity in the relationship. And as I've often said, I don't know of any relationships that are welcome in ambiguity because right. it leaves the other person saying, what about me? What about us? What about our hopes and dreams that you don't mm-hmm. seem to mm-hmm. share anymore? I don't know what's going on. And, you know, again, it's not good and bad people. It's really about overwhelmed people. Right. So it's a, it's a big, it's a big task to, you know, start that integration process and to really kind of narrow it down. So, 
I like I said, I, I don't feel like I was in, in hell and I don't feel like I'd been a bad person before. I think at that critical time in my evolution, I was be, being given almost like a refresher course, maybe for why I'm really here. Right. Why we're all here. You know, we're, we're all here to hopefully evolve and become better people. In so doing, one person at a time, the world might actually have a chance of being a better place, a little bit better anyway. Mm -hmm. But it is going to be one person at a time. You're not going to legislate it, and you're not going to beat it into people. They have to want to do it, and they have to be shown why it's a good thing to do. And right. that's that simple. Yeah. Of your own spiritual beliefs, do you believe in reincarnation? I do. I've followed, before my crash, um, I, I follow an Eastern path, and uh, yeah, I mean, I'm fully accepting of reincarnation. I have no question about it. And I think I've even, you know, like remembered a past life here and there based upon, I guess, natural abilities I have in this life. It kind of made sense. So I don't think for me, there's any question whatsoever. About a week afterwards, you started this all coming back to you. Do you feel like still at this point in time, because I think this is about four years ago, right? Almost four years. It'll be four years in October. Um, do you feel like more information or more memories still come back or you've kind of like tapped out on that? Yeah, that's good. I, I feel like I've gotten all the, I mean, I feel like I have all the memories there and because I actually asked for my laptop to be delivered to me at the hospital so I could start writing it. Then I was terrified, terrified. It was, it was going to fade. Wow. Well, it's never faded. Um, what comes through now, it's as if I'm able to, sort of distill the grapes of the experience, if you will, into the wine of wisdom. I'm not saying I'm wise. I'll okay. be the last person to say I'm wise. But in terms of trying to really chew on this and get something out of it, that happens all the time. That's mm -hmm. And that was the fruit of my first book. Mm -hmm. So um, the last third of the book, in fact, I would say would be where I – sort of was returning to some of the big questions we all ask in life mm -hmm. about love, about judgment, about answers and purpose and things like that. But now with this new perspective that I think sees more shades of gray between the duality, the binary need for our Western minds, and it sees many more shades of gray between the mm -hmm. binary polar opposites. Mm -hmm. Things aren't always all yes and all no, there's a whole lot of middle ground there. And to me, obviously, this speaks to some kind of wisdom and some kind of spirituality to look at those shades of gray. I mean, yeah, no one is generally all good or all bad. Again, I'll speak in general terms there. Um, and things aren't always <laughs> ready or not. You know, sometimes they're a little bit of, you know, and, and like they say, never let the perfect be the enemy of the good. What are your thoughts on death now? Like, do you fear it or do you not fear it? Have they changed since right. the accident? Well, one way I characterize it is when I was interested in spirituality before, I mean, I read a lot of books. I would talk to a lot of people. You know, I had my own practice. Obviously, I, I would say I had some amount of spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. But it was mostly intellectual learning, you know? Yeah. And now what I, let's say, intellectually knew before is woven into my being mm -hmm. because of this experience. And so when I talk about these things, I just feel this greater sense of connection uh, very deep when I'm, when I'm sharing them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as a result, I think that, you know, sharing, sharing those truths with people 
there's just simply a different vibration in my voice, my body language, inflection, and even the pregnant pause, you know, that, that really kind of speaks to these truths. And honestly, it's interesting how so many of these truths have a, as I was mentioning before, have a slight ambiguity to them. And one day I was realizing, you know, some of the greatest truths we hear have that ambiguity. Like if you read the Tao Te Ching, you know, written 2,600 years ago in China, some of what it says is highly ambiguous, but it means when we're chewing on it, we're, we're stretching to that truth. Mm-hmm. And in that stretch, we're trying to color in our own life experience into those gaps created by those ambiguities. So as we fill those truths in with parts of our lives, we're starting to own those truths in such a way that one day when we repeat them, now it will be with our own voice, our own reference points, and we will actually be able to say we start to own that truth. Mm -hmm. And then people hear that authenticity in your voice and they see that authenticity in your actions. And now that truth really has some possibility of traction to help people. Do you fear death or fear death or do you fear death any less than you did before? Like now, if you think about dying, you know, I mean, I think generally everybody has a certain amount of fear of death. Do you have any fear of death or not in the sense of this? No, I mean, I don't think any of us are keen on the ways we go there. You, right. know? <laughs> you know, nobody wants to like burn to death or drown mm-hmm. or things like that. But I will say that I have absolutely no fear of death. I'm, I'm, if, if God came back and said, I need you to come back over and, you know, I need to kick your butt some more because we have more work to do, I'd go in a heartbeat, as uncomfortable as it was. And every now and then I'll see the light angle change outside, like usually in the fall or early winter. And it's as if that light angle is about what it was in the in-between. And I am immediately and emotionally taken back to that place. And, it, and it's in a flash, but I'll tell you what, it takes me three days to get over it. Wow. It is it is uncomfortable because, you know, you're being stretched to your max. Yeah. It's meant to be uncomfortable. Okay, no problem. But, boy, it's it's very powerful. But, again, I'll say no fear of death, not keen on dying. Mm. Um, it's like changing channels. You know, when you're watching one channel and you get bored and you change a channel on TV, how long are you thinking about the channel you just left? Right. Not much at all. It's kind of like that. Yeah, that's interesting. Let me catch a question here. Um, Since your experience, have you dealt differently with rude, angry, or hateful people? Yeah, I I realize part part of a near-death experience, remember I was saying how depersonalized I was? Yeah. It's much easier to kind of take yourself out of the equation. And you realize, you know, this person was probably being nasty before I showed up. And they'll probably be nasty after I'm gone. It has nothing to do with me. So I can just sort of sit here and not get sucked in, don't have to fight. I can just objectively watch this process and see what I can understand about this person by the baggage they're carrying around. And maybe I can even ask a question or two or say something in a certain way that might, you know, just lower the temperature a little bit. And maybe we'll have a real conversation. That's how you approach it. So it's a good question. But honestly, um, it doesn't, you know, they don't bother me or shake me like they used to, you know. What has your wife said about how you've changed since then? Has she said, hey, you're so different this way now? Or Right. No, that's a good question because I am one of those statistics. Oh. You know, we're separated right oh, now. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. 
No, no, no. It's okay. Again, um, I mean, it was like a year to the day she came into my office and said, we're going to marriage therapy. I said, okay. So we we went really for like 18 months. And one day, um, you know, she was sitting there uh, talking about, I guess, some some of the ways in which I'd irritated her. And the therapist said, well, none of these are really that bad. And And I said, you know, have I been like this since my crash? which I had to say my crash because she won't say by NDE, you know, it's oh, a real problem accepting it. Mm-hmm. And she said, to be honest, no, you haven't. And I said, that's right. I said, that person again died in a crash. Mm-hmm. I said, this is what you have now. You have to build a new. And then I said, the words from the in-between came through on this. And I said, and if you want me to put a real sharp point on it, our marriage vows say till death do us part. Oh, what happens when one of us dies? No matter that we return. Yeah. Our covenant is broken. Right. The reason we stay together now is because we choose to. And they're right. just kind of give you this deer in the headlights. Look, what do you say to that? Right. And anyway, um, eventually she, I guess, you know, the ways I've changed or whatever, um, you know, she, I think she's just decided to, you know, find happiness elsewhere. And God bless her and I wish her well. Have any of your other family members or friends noticed a change in you and said anything that was significant? Yeah, yeah everybody. everybody. Um, my, um, well, like I said, I married a widow with three babies. Mm-hmm. And now I realize maybe I wasn't intended to be this lifelong husband, but mm-hmm. I was intended to be this lifelong father. Right. So I have a great relationship with the kids. Oh, and my, my youngest daughter, who's really smart, one day just said, Dad, you think in four dimensions? And I said, yeah, that's, that's a compliment coming from you. Um, but my, my mother's noticed a change. All of my colleagues have. And a lot of it is just, you know, you're more chill now. You know, things don't seem to bother you. You seem to have a lot more understanding, a lot more patience. Basically all good things. Things you, we would hope to have, not, not at the expense of an airplane and, you know, <laughs> in your mm-hmm. body. Mm-hmm. But, you know, right now, I'll take it. I am grateful for the experience. I have no PTSD because mm-hmm. I have no memory. Mm-hmm. And I am grateful for the experience. And I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Oh, okay. You know, I don't know the classifications of psychological diagnoses. And I found that interesting that you said that you have, I, mean, I wasn't thinking you had PTSD anyways, but that you're saying that you know, you don't have PTSD. I think that they say that some people who have been on vent- ventilators, have PTSD, but I guess that's due to the memories of being on it. I think you have to remember it. That right. that's true. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I have no memory of it. And I'm. I, I will say this though, in reference to PTSD, mm-hmm. part of the challenge in coming, you know, out out of the accident or the whatever gave you the NDE and integrating it into your life certainly for many people is a path of finding a therapist. The problem is it can be a challenge finding a therapist who has any expertise with near death experiences can grant the validity needed to that experience and can kind of help you walk your way through it. I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say the closest uh, flavor of therapy I could imagine that might be helpful if you don't is probably something along, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. Seriously, because it is a big shake to you, for sure. Right. Let me catch another question here. Uh, First, I believe there's a statement. It says, philosopher Alan Watts said he felt that death was very similar to the trauma of being born. 
while we don't remember much from the birth event, perhaps a as a mental protective measure, would you agree on that concept? Yeah, I love Alan Watts. I mean, who doesn't? I mean, he's he's fantastic. I wish he was still with us. Um, yeah, to a great extent. I mean, like I said, it is like a reboot. It's like a rebirth. I've even thought after a near-death experience, it'd be really interesting to, especially if you had a baseline to work from before, like go do a personality inventory, do an IQ test, do a handwriting analysis. I mean, just do you even run your horoscope all over considering this to now be your new birthday and see what diagnostic, uh, analytic, even predictive value you get out of that. You know, there, there has to be some change that could be reflected in some measurable way, not sure which, that would give you some insight into just even this much more insight into the changes because you are in so many ways a new person now. Do you think that it's possible that you have forgotten some of the events that happened in the in between? See, I, I mean, I, I certainly was humbled enough to say possibly. That might be one of the reasons I wouldn't mind having a the equivalent of a life between life regression. Right. But I just would love to go back to that experience and just as uncomfortable as it might be, go into it full full tilt and just re-embrace it and see what other, I mean, obviously it came at a dear price, right. you know, of, of what I went through. So the desire to go back there and make sure that I've essentially prospected it for everything I can get out of it is just saying, you know, paying homage to the experience, the holiness of the experience, if you will, and just saying, you know, I, I just want to make sure I'm not missing anything here. Yeah, I think it'd be amazing. I'm I'm really curious to see if and what you would get from a from a regression. You know, I'll report back yeah. uh, when I do that. <laughs> get, a, get a second interview back because yeah, you might you know it would there might be a lot of pieces of the puzzle that are are right. been left out or exactly. Or, um, let me catch another another question here. The Arantia book talks about life after death and that some. Return to the physical state as reincarnation, while others who have learned, lived, and loved ascend to the next level of consciousness. What has been the biggest learning experience of coming back from the throes of death? That's good. Um. Okay. You know what? I would certainly say that with every with the removal of these gears watching the recalibration over and over and over again of my destiny if you will and being told that it was important i watched that and that i learned from that it's as if on a instinct level that's what is with me now when i say this allow me to explain i don't pray anymore uh -huh. why okay Think about it. A lot of people's prayers might be, you know, like, please save me from my bad decisions. You know, right. <laughs> you know, don't, don't let her sue me, you know, after mm -hmm. our date or don't, you know, you know, I don't know, whatever, you know, don't, don't let me, you know, like my debts catch up with me or my bad habits catch up with me. It could be a lot of things. Of course, some prayers might be to save a loved one. Like, don't let my child die of cancer. That's legit. And I'm not going to be anyone who says to someone, you should not pray. I'm just saying I don't because I was shown how things fit and refit together. You can't create a vacuum and leave it. It will fill in. So I 
became more acquiescent in God's will. I don't pursue joy and I don't try and avoid sorrow. When there's joy to be had, you enjoy joy and then you let it go. When there's sorrow to be had, become sorrowful. And then when it's time, let it go. And But don't be defined by either. It'd be better, you know, with that sine wave going up and down, you have that main axis of acquiescence, just accepting of either and realizing both are just two sides of the same coin. So I think it's important to, to keep that perspective. And when you do that, it just keeps you a little more detached overall. So there are all these little subtle woven things into the answer to your question that you know, you, you take a few pages of like the Tao Te Ching and read it and you start to see them there over and over and over again. It really drives it home, the experience you've had. But but you talked about the depth. Mm-hmm. I would say that's very true. Um, for me, it was like just seeing, again, the causal relationships between things. So maybe it was the causal plane I went to. I don't know. Um, also, the sense of time. You know, when they talked about, you know, when it said you're, you're standing in the eternity of a single moment, you know, in quantum physics, Planck time, named after Max Planck, the father of quantum physics, is 10 to the minus 43 or 44 seconds, which is one one hundred millionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second. That's a real short time. But it's like I'm feeling less the amount of time I was there for while one week passed here. Because, you know, E equals MC squared from Einstein pretty much says that for light, there is no time. So you can wonder, as you go through these various higher planes, becoming less mass and becoming more light, maybe that's why, or maybe that's one indicator of how time slows down. Because you generally will hear that time slows down the higher you go within. So maybe there's even a, a corollary there to help us understand how deeply we went in if we had a measurement for how much time slowed down. I don't think there's a yardstick for that yet, but maybe they're just maybe it's out there in enough reported cases of NDEs that one could be kind of put together. Yeah. You know, I thought I've kind of toy around with the idea that maybe when you're dead, wherever you are, time doesn't exist anymore. Kind of like what you're saying. There isn't really exactly. time and and you can almost if you want to reincarnate, you could literally say, I'm going to reincarnate in the past or in the future or whatever experience you want. It's all like maybe the history, um, eternity is already played out and you just got to, you decide, that. you can decide where do you want to pop in at. Sure. I support that because, you know, like with in, in quantum physics, when they talk about, you know, quantum entanglement. Uh, they've actually, you know, entangled two particles that were had radioactive decay. And by putting one in a particle accelerator, they actually took it out of sync with its entangled mate, right? By putting okay. it in a particle accelerator, they essentially put it into a different time frame. Oh, interesting. And yet that the entangled rules about you change one, it changes the other, were still intact. So the, the grand theory that could come out of that is there are two entangled particles one at the beginning of time and one at the end of time. And if you change one, you instantly change the other, which means that between the two, those two endpoints of time is only the present. 14.3 billion years of present. So yeah, you could be reincarnated at any time, past or future as we define it. And, I, that, that that's a very much a theory that's out there or a, a, a part of philosophy or, you know, it's very much a belief. So you're, you're on target. 
Um, do you talk to many people that have had NDEs? Once I realized I had an NDE, I, you know, joined the, a, a local group here, the IANS, International Association of Near-Death Studies. That's a great place to discover uh-huh. online. And like I say, you read through some of the cases. Ender, uh-huh. um, Near-Death Experience Research Foundation is also another group. I think they have a well over 4,000 cases. Uh-huh. So you can um, find a lot of these cases and read through them, and that's where you see a lot of the commonalities. I've only found one case that comes anywhere close to mine, uh-huh. and it was, again, it was more from an emotional standpoint that I synced with it. And the poor experiencer said he was so terrified of it. He never wanted to talk about it again. I tried to see if I could contact him and no one would let me. So I said, okay, I get it. And I can understand why it'd be very terrifying. But anyway, I, I'm grateful for my reaction, but um, I did go to the local group, kind of kept my mouth shut first couple of meetings. And I started to talk to a couple of people there about it. Next thing I know I'm presenting it. Next thing I know, I'm presenting it to more groups. Uh-huh. Then I'm going down to the international conference and presenting. And uh-huh. that's where people say, you got to write a book. So I come uh-huh. home, I write the book. Uh-huh. And um, now, you know, there've been a lot of podcasts and I've been enjoying sharing the message more. I've continued to meet more people now and uh-huh. talk, uh-huh. talk to them. And um, it's actually kind of redesi- redefined my sense of family and friends. Uh-huh. If people want to pick up your book, what's the best way to get one? Sure. It's um, the in-between, a journey, I mean, sorry, a trip of a lifetime. It's on Amazon. Uh-huh. It's on Amazon, both in print, it's uh, in Kindle and Audible as oh, well. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Are you are you the are you the person reading the book in Audible or is there somebody else? I am. Oh, awesome. That's even, even, yeah. That's even I, better. Yeah, I first... Yeah, I first thought about it, like, you know, I wonder if professional voice talent is better. And and then I just thought, you know, that this story, I, I'm just a big believer that if someone's actually had the experience, it's better that they tell it. And like I said, there'll be a vibration in your words that's an authenticity no one else can imitate. So just do it. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think it would be best to hear it, you know, coming from the author's own mouth, right? I mean, I yeah, can you imagine if Tolkien was reading Lord of the Rings? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let me catch another um let me catch another question here. Do you believe and this is kind of maybe a little off topic but maybe not because, you know, as you said and I'm sure there are lots of people that don't believe in your experience, but what do you think about other experiences that people have had like as if they said that they've been abducted by aliens or things like that? Well, if you want to talk about specifically that, um, I have no reason to doubt it. It's in, I will say this, there, there's, there does seem to be an interesting relationship of some sort between mostly like the after effects Mm -hmm. of people who report alien abductions Mm -hmm. and the after effects of near death experiences where people can be more psychic Mm -hmm. or feel like more hopeful. I mean, it's interesting, the similarities that come after. Now, is that because both are equally stressful in some kind of process way that we as, you know, evolutionary products of humanity respond in the same way or same enough way that we say, wow, you know, what is it about those two experiences? 
maybe because they're more similar in process than content. It's really it's really not for me to say because I I certainly won't sit here and say I've, I've experienced an alien abduction, but I'm and I'm also not going to tell someone else they didn't either. I I I believe that obviously they've experienced something. I don't know enough about it to respond. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, again, I, I won't discount it at all. I would listen with full respect, looking for where we might align and learn from each other. Okay. What were your thoughts about NDEs before this, or did you ever even consider it? Right. I think I was more conversant with the concept of out-of-body experiences, mm-hmm. you know, like astral projection or meditating and rising above the body and things like that. I I believe I had heard of near-death experiences, but I really didn't dig into them as much. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think because I thought, well, if you can meditate and have a out-of-body experience, you know, why go and crash an airplane and do that? You know, it's, it seemed to be better to have a spiritually and transformative experience from something a lot easier like meditation, even though it might take longer, mm-hmm. but you know, having a near death experience is like, you know, that quantum leap, like getting shot out of a cannon. So once that happens, you just go with that and say, okay, obviously I wasn't meditating enough. So this was the short- shortcut to the oh, front I of the mean, line. I think sometimes it just takes some type of trauma to kind of shake you out, you know? Yeah, it's kind of like a smack upside the head. Just pop out. Uh, Do you have any new projects that you're working on right now that you want people to know about? Yeah, thank you. Well, I've, I've, like I said, I've been on some great uh, shows recently. I was recently on uh, George Norrie's Coast to Coast AM. I'm actually going out there this weekend to uh, be on uh, the Gaia program that's his, and that's uh, Beyond Belief. And then I have some more podcasts. There's a NDE summit by Tricia Barker, August 1st and 2nd, I think. And I'll be speaking at the end about this, about where I'm going now. Basically, it's the topic of my second book. And then I'll be closing the summit for her. Uh, and then I'm going to be at some international book festivals later this year uh, into early next year. But the second book, let's put it this way. Let me back and say, a lot of people who for, for whom my story has resonated in some way. I've said, how would we put this into practice? You know, how, how do we experience something of what you experienced, you know, the good side of it and giving a lot of thought to that. Um, my second book will be called the practice in between the art of letting go. And I really did sort of set some of the foundations in my first book to launch pad into that. And people have said, so what's this about letting go? There's a lot we can say about that. You know, in letting go, you can become present. In letting go, you can think in a nonlinear fashion, one that looks at patterns more than just, for, you know, bipolar answers. But a big part of it is is in a very simple, like, three-sentence statement. On the field of battle, when a samurai draws his sword and throws his scabbard away, it's because he will never need it again. On this day, he's free to fight his best. This Surrender, this letting go, this being passion, you know, living passion in the moment is what it's all about. Whether we're, you know, climbing Mount Everest or surfing a hundred foot wave or taking the garbage out, just be present and live a life that allows you to be present. Because when you're present, you're really not so self-involved or or, um, self-absorbed. You really let go of that and you're just in that moment and it's easy to almost forget who you are just like on the other side it's like meditation 
do you ever sit and reflect like, wow, this was my life before this? And then, you know, like my, my life, my job, my career, my family. And then, you know, here I am now. I'm like, you know, it's like a complete, a new life. I'm not really sure what you were doing as far as a job right before the crash. I don't know if you were still a, a correspondent at the time no. or what were you? I was, I was doing IT project management. When I, when I retired from the war business, I, I did have a bit of a corporate animal life. I took my media technology skills. I worked for Pfizer, managing their business programming unit. Then I was a director of tech. I was a director of all media at UNICEF as part of the UN in New York. And then I worked for a large accounting firm as a global lead in voice and video telecommunications. And then I decided, you know, I just liked something where it might be short-term projects. So I was contracting as a IT project manager, for, but like for ESPN, you know, big projects, big companies and all that. But, you know, it was short, it was punchy, and then you change channels and go off on another adventure. So that kind of works with my, with my ADD, I guess. Um, now, honestly, though, I just don't really think about that. I, I will say this, detachment is both a blessing and a curse. It's a, it's a total blessing if you don't have many relationships and they aren't asking you to, you know, take care of them and, you know, like to reattach to them. But, you know, if you, if you do have relationships, um, being detached can be a real challenge. Mm-hmm. It really can be because now you're being true to yourself. And that usually means people realizing that they don't have the same place in your heart they did before. Intellectually, yes, but emotionally, no. Right. That's interesting that you use the word detachment. And I'm not sure if it's Hindu or Buddhist, but I think at least the Buddhists take detachment even to an extreme. Like you're just detached from all worldly, you know, all worldly things. I mean, where you're just down to begging for food and meditating and, and, I, I I can understand that. It, like I said, I was when I was so depersonalized. I think that was sort of where these attachments were being broken. And honestly, you know, when I go on Facebook and I see some people who are supposed to have had a near death experience getting wound around the axle about politics or some of these other things that really do involve the maintenance of this world, I want to say. And again, I'm not naming names, but I'm wanting to say, you know, did you not get a change of perspective that lasted? I mean, empires come and empires go. They always have. They always will. This world is not going to be perfect. It never will be. So why are you getting so bent out of shape about this? You know, you're going to change channels soon. You'll have another body. It'll be another go and it'll be something else. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Well, then before we wrap it up here, do you have any last message that you'd like to leave the audience with? Sure. Um, if you want a, a review of my experience, you can visit my website at inbetweenproductions.com. That's a plural, inbetweenproductions.com. The link to Amazon for the book is there. Uh, some other media um, from the past. Uh, you can also connect to me directly if you want and be happy to chat with anyone, answer any questions. You know, if someone has anything negative to say, go ahead, but I'm not really trying to sell you anything. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying buy my book. I'm not saying, you know, buy an hour of my time. Mm -hmm. I really don't care. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this is, I didn't ask for this. Uh, It just happened. So I just felt like sharing my story with people. And for those uh, who have a little bit of insight, great. I mean, hopefully in taking time to, uh, you know, read my story in some way they'll see reflected 
in it their own journey. And that's really all I have. I mean, that's great. I mean, that's great. Jim, I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much for giving me an hour of your time. Um, I wish you massive success with your book and your next book and any other projects that you're into. Jeff, thank you. I've enjoyed the time with you tonight. And, you know, thank you to those who are listening. And again, time is a gift. You can't ever get it back. So mm-hmm. I do accept it as a gift. Thank you much. All right. Thank you. And have a good evening. And you. Bye. Bye-bye.